It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And Father, we just pause to ask as we continue now in our worship through the study of the word of God that you would prepare us. Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church as we assemble together and open this portion of your word. We ask that as always, Lord, through your Holy Spirit's ministry, that you would speak to each and every one of us individually and speak to us collectively, Lord. And particularly, even as we pause this morning as well and celebrate the Lord's Supper as we partake of the bread and the cup, Lord, on the backside of this time in your word, we pray you would prepare us for that time as well and that your spirit would glorify your son and speak to us this day. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the devil has and he always will try to resist and to stop what God is trying to bring to pass. Whenever God is trying to orchestrate his plan and his will, whenever God is trying to give birth to something that he desires, the devil will always make his efforts to try and terminate what God is seeking to give birth to. And we see that very reality unfolding in our text in front of us this morning. And I think it is really wise to be aware of this spiritual reality, to be able to understand this truth so that we can discern and at times detect spiritual warfare so that rather than being overcome, that we as well can overcome instead by the power of God. Again, remember the Bible tells us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. And God wants us to be aware that warfare is real and resistance will happen, but he wants us to be victorious by his power. Now, remember the backdrop in our study in Revelation. John has been receiving this spiritual revelation from the Lord Jesus himself, and he's been receiving this revelation. We've noticed that many a times his focus has been taken back and forth from a heavenly realm to seeing things that are happening on the earth to seeing things happening back at the throne of God to seeing things happening on the earth. And back and forth, the focus has shifted numerous times from the spiritual realm, the throne of God, to seeing events transpiring on the earth during the seven-year period of tribulation. And I think it's perhaps to cause John to realize that these two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm are directly interconnected in many ways beyond what we often realize. And perhaps in one way, God is trying to emphasize to John and emphasize to all of us this reality of what's happening in the realm of the spirit influences 
what is happening in the physical earthly realm as well. Look, let me just say as a disclaimer, unashamedly, that's one of the valuable reasons why, on top of many others, it is important, essential, and vital for us to pray. Because as we pray, we seek the realm of the Spirit, and as we seek the realm of the Spirit, it makes a difference in the physical, earthly, temporal realm that we live in here in this life. And those two are directly interconnected. And John here, at this point now, once again has his focus taken up into heaven to see heavenly things. And chapter 12 lends itself to this very reality of what transpires in heaven directly affects the circumstances on the earth. What is transpiring in the realm of the spirit and even spiritual warfare will always directly be influencing circumstantial events that are happening on the earth. Look with me in verse 1 as our text opens this morning. It tells us, now a great sign appeared, John says, in heaven. Now, that term there, a great sign, is not referring to the idea of we may think of a sign as far as like a miraculous wonder, signs and wonders. That's not the idea there, a miraculous wonder that causes us to be amazed by God as much as the implication of the language is a sign in the sense of something that signifies something that's to be understood. The term that's used there is a reference to signifying something that's greatly important, just like signs on the roadway, they represent something to us. This is what John's referring to when he says that he saw a great sign in heaven. What we are going to find here is John seeing something which signifies, or we might say symbolizes, things that God wants him to understand. This sign represents another thing. It represents things figuratively. And what John is seeing here in this scene symbolizes things that God wants him to know and God wants him to understand. Particularly verses 1 through 5, the Spirit will symbolize and signify things to John in this revelation that actually point to things that have happened in the past. In, in a time before John's time, back through human history, all the way up and through the time of the ascension of Christ. When we come to verse 6 and go through the remainder of the chapter, then the things that are seen actually fast forward to future events and to things that will be transpiring in a time period even ahead of where we are today. During the time of the, the, the rapture of the church and then the tribulation period happening on earth and it will be taken into a future extent. As John sees this sign, the first thing we're told that he sees, verse 1, is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, you can read different commentators, and through church history, there are those who have tried to take this woman and make her represent numerous different things. For example, and some of you may have this from your background, the Roman Catholic Church has tried to interpret this woman here in chapter 12 as a reference to the Virgin Mary. And if you look at some of the art that you'll see at times, you will see her depicted with this idea connected to the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, let me just say, first of all, that doesn't work as you go through the entire chapter. 
It's a very poor interpretation, and there's a major stretch to try and make this fit the Virgin Mary. Certainly, we recognize God used her as the individual to give birth to Christ, but what this represents here, and we can let the Word of God help us draw those conclusions, this woman here in chapter 12, as you carry it through the entire chapter, is a picture symbolically representing the nation of Israel. And as we let God's word be what helps us to interpret in context what passages represent, first of all, in the Old Testament scriptures, Israel is often pictured in the feminine as a woman in relationship to God. Many times in the Old Testament, Israel is spoken of as God's wife. Many times Israel is represented by feminine pronouns such as her and she, for example, Exodus chapter, excuse me, uh, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 31, Micah 4, 9 and 10. The entire book of Hosea represents Israel nationally as God's wife. Secondly, we're told here in the language that's used that this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, that same language we find used elsewhere in the Word of God. And where we find that language used elsewhere in the Word of God, it is a direct reference clearly to the nation of Israel in the establishment of Israel in their earliest days. You have Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Remember, they were the patriarchs of Israel. And then Jacob had his 12 sons. And one of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, began to have dreams of what God had intended for Joseph's future when he would find himself in a place of rulership there in Egypt to spare the Jewish nation during a very difficult time to preserve their line. And remember, as God began to give to these Joseph these dreams, he started sharing these dreams with his brothers and with his family. Genesis chapter 37, you might want to jot down, was the occasion where these dreams came. And I want you to listen. This was one of the dreams that Joseph shared. Genesis 37 Joseph said, listen, I've had another dream. And listen to the language. This time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So notice, even his father, as he heard the dream, Jacob, the patriarch of Israel in the early days of the nation, recognized what was represented that this picture, Jacob, the father as the son, it pictured the mother in that scene as the moon and all of the sons of Jacob as the stars, the 11 stars. And of course, Jacob would be the 12th star. In case you're saying, wait a minute, there was 11 there, there's 12 here or excuse me, Joseph would be the 12th star. And his father represented this, even in his interpretation of the dream, understanding as a reference to them as a family and the nation of Israel. So that very same language that John is given here exists earlier in the word of God as a clear representation of the nation of Israel. And then thirdly, this woman, notice, is 
In this vision represented as being pregnant, carrying the spiritual seed that would ultimately give birth to this special male child who verse 5, as we read, told us, is the child who will become the ruler of all nations or all people and will be caught up to heaven at God's throne. And we'll see from the details and the context that male child clearly is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. And God's word teaches very clearly that it is the woman Israel, God's chosen nation, God's spiritual wife, if you would, that ultimately is the people group ethnically that would give birth to God's son, the Messiah, when he would enter into this world. Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, declares of the nation of Israel specifically, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. The Bible is very clear that the Son of God, his spiritual origin is from God the Father in heaven. But his earthly origin in his humanity is that he entered into this world born as a Jewish man from the nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are who gave birth to the Son of God in his humanity on this earth. And look, folks, and we'll see this in our next study, this is why the devil also has such venomous hatred toward the Jewish people and the nation of Israel for this very reason. And the second half of the chapter, we'll see that clearly portrayed to us. Now, in verse 2, notice, describing Israel, it says that she being with child cried out in labor and pain to give birth. So as a pregnant woman with child crying out in labor pain, notice the nation of Israel's responsibility of giving birth to the promised deliverer, to the Messiah, God's son that was being sent into the world. As Israel, if you would, was enduring the pregnancy of this process, Israel endured a very difficult process that ultimately resulted in giving birth to the Son of God. It was a hard, painful experience to carry out that responsibility given to them by God spiritually to ultimately give birth to God's Son. Now, if I can make a connection to that, when a woman undergoes the process from conception and carrying a child through a difficult pregnancy and then ultimately giving birth to that child, which is a very precious, difficult, painful process, but yet results in giving something valuable, important, and wonderful. As a woman does that, she certainly deserves our great appreciation and respect. And all the moms would say, right, yeah, absolutely. The dad should have said it louder. We missed it there, guys. She deserves a great degree of appreciation, tremendous respect, and we owe a debt of gratitude. Well, look, in the same way, that's what Israel deserves spiritually. As the one nation who gave birth, who went through, if you would, the spiritual pregnancy process and all that's endured for them historically to then give birth to the Son of God, our Savior, our Lord, the nation of Israel simply having carried out that responsibility they deserve tremendous gratitude. 
They deserve tremendous respect and incredible appreciation. And that is why, as Christians, we should be indebted to the nation of Israel. We should have a sense of appreciation for them and should always stand in solidarity with them. We should always stand in support of them because of what they have given to us in bringing to pass the difficult process of bringing the Son of God into the world. Look with me in verse 3. John goes on to say, and then another sign, another representative symbolic thing appeared in heaven. Behold, he says, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads, and his tail, verse 4 says, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So we're now introduced to this next personage, and it is a great dragon. Now again, we don't have to wonder or try really hard to identify who this great dragon is. If you glance over with me in verse 9, it tells us directly. Verse 9 says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. So little Bible uh, principle here, notice oftentimes if you just keep reading the word of God, he gives you the answers and the conclusions that you need. Wonder who this great red dragon is? Read four more verses. God says, this is who the great red dragon is. It's the devil. Look, I think this is just a good little simple reminder and application for us. Many a times we get weary, just keep reading. Just keep reading your Bible. The answer will come. The dots will get connected. Just keep reading. And as we keep reading, it's very clear this dragon is the devil. Now here, notice the devil is pictured, and we're going to see really when we go through the second half of the chapter, he's pictured in various ways. And we learn a lot about the devil in chapter 12 of Revelation. And let me just say, knowing your enemy and how he works is a great help to staying safe and overcoming him in the midst of spiritual warfare. The first thing we see of the devil here is him being described symbolically as a great red dragon. Now, again, not a literal red dragon. I know art wants to picture Satan that way. Other times, Satan is pictured as a ferocious lion in the Bible. We know that what Satan clearly is, the Bible teaches, he's a fallen angelic spirit that has become defiled spiritually, but the symbolic imagery here in Revelation chapter 12 of him, he's pictured as a great red dragon, no doubt signifying Satan as a powerful, fierce, serpent-like monster or creature who is looking to devour and to destroy. He's portrayed as a serpent-like monster with overwhelming power to cause fear, intimidation, to burn and to ruin and to destroy lives like we might picture a great red fiery dragon able to do. Notice, this is the imagery that God wants us to have of the devil, to understand his nature, to recognize, if you would, his capability of destruction. The fact that the color red 
is used of him here perhaps maybe represents his fierce anger and his murderous, bloodthirsty intentions. In fact, if you notice, again, if you could glance over to verse 12, it seems very clear the murderous anger of the devil. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great, look, wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. In John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking of the devil descriptively, said this to the religious leaders, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And what are the devil's desires? Jesus said of him as God, he was a murderer from the beginning. In John chapter 10, Jesus, I believe, making inference to the devil as well, spoke of him as a spiritual thief whose agenda is to rob, kill, and destroy lives and everything that is good and everything that is godly. And this title, the dragon, is now the main descriptive image used of the devil throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. God wants us folks to realize that the devil is not only real, but he has got a very clear agenda that he is always seeking to operate like a great red dragon with murderous intentions. He is fiercely wicked and destructive and powerful as an enemy, and his agenda is something that we must be alert to, that we need to wake up and realize, that we can't be naive about or dismiss or bury our heads in the sand. We have to wake up to the reality that the Bible teaches very clearly that we have a spiritual enemy and he is not casual in his intentions or his agenda or in his efforts. We're also told that John sees this symbolic representation of the devil there in verse 3. Notice it says, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on those heads. Now look, first of all, any seven-headed dragon is quite a monster. We know the number seven, as we've talked about before, is the number of completion. And, and again, the head, as we think of from any perspective, the head is the place of the mind and it's the place of reasoning. So perhaps in some way here, representative to remind us of how extremely smart and crafty that the devil is, that he's an incredibly intelligent being in his schemes, incredibly experienced in his tactics and his plans. He is like a spiritual military genius. He has been studying humanity for all of human history. And he knows very well, strategically, in his great intelligence, how to strategize and to attack and to intimidate and to discourage the souls of people, to strike fear in the hearts of human beings. He knows how to harm and to ruin, how to tempt, how to distract, to do anything he can to hinder, to rob, kill, to murder, and to destroy human lives. And he's incredibly intelligent. And he works in crafty ways in each and every life of a person as he brings his assault against human beings. Notice he's pictured not only having seven heads, but it says ten horns 
and seven diadems or crowns upon such. Horns uh, are always representative in the scripture of power because the horn of an animal is the place of its power and its authority to conquer in battles. When it references here these diadems or crowns, crowns always speak of authority or rulership over things. And again, the Bible teaches that Satan has a degree of spiritual rulership, both in really two ways and two realms. He has a degree of spiritual rulership, both over the demonic realm itself and unclean spirits, as well as over the fallen world system here on this planet. The Bible is very clear that Satan has authority and rule over the demonic spirits who have, in a sense, joined him in his rebellion. And again, if we glance back in verse 4, that's even alluded to where it tells us there of this dragon, the devil, that he drew with his tail. It says, a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Stars are bright, shining, powerful forces, and they are one of the metaphorical images used in the word of God to describe angelic beings. So no doubt this is describing how Satan in his fall from his spiritual position when he rebelled, that he drew away with him in his rebellious act one-third of the angelic realm. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, two important chapters you should know, they describe Satan's origin, how Satan himself originally was created by God as an angelic being, and he had a very high-ranking position among the angelic realm with great authority, but yet he became proud, he desired more power, and he rebels against God, and he fell from his position as God dethroned him for the pride and the sinful rebellion in his heart. Jesus said, again, as God speaking, Luke 10, Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we're told here in verse 4 that when he fell, he drew one-third of the angelic realm with him. Interesting, Matthew 25, as Jesus speaking of the devil there, says that the place of everlasting fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels, referencing that he has a cohort of angels that have followed him. Over in chapter 12, verse 9, it speaks of the devil and his angels who follow him being cast out of heaven. So understanding that these are the dark spiritual forces of evil that now resist God's purpose on earth. They work to hinder God's plans to seek to defile lives and bring resistance and warfare against God's people. So Satan has a degree of rulership over the demonic realm that followed him in his rebellion and work in cooperation with him to try and hinder God's purposes on the earth. Satan also has a degree of rulership over the fallen world system on this earth. And the Bible teaches that very clearly as well. In three different places, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. The idea is this world system. Paul, speaking of the devil in 2 Corinthians 4, called him the God of this present evil age, that he's the one who is keeping people blinded. He's keeping people proud in their rebellion against rejecting Christ. 1 John chapter 5 says that the whole world, the idea is the world system, is under the sway, that is the controlling influence of the wicked one. 
In Revelation chapter 13, when we get there, we'll see further that the devil is who indwells and influences the coming one world ruler, who we know is the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet, his partner, and even the coming one world global government. In fact, that imagery there in the end of verse 3, describing the devil having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head, that stems from language originally in Daniel chapter 7, which there is describing prophetically a coming revived Roman Empire, which will no doubt arise in the European area during the time of the tribulation from which the coming one world political ruler, the Antichrist, will arise out from among and will begin to take his power. And the allusion here to these heads and horns are a foreshadowing of this coming work of the devil and this one world global empire that will exist. In fact, if you want to glance over chapter 13, verse 1, you'll notice there it says this, I stood on the sand and the sea and I saw another beast, that's a reference to the Antichrist, we'll see, rising out of the sea, notice having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And we'll talk more about what that represents when we get there. Now, knowing the woman is Israel, the dragon is the devil, we now see in the conclusion of our verses here, the devil's earliest historical efforts, even prior to John's time, going all the way back and carrying all the way through to some of what John lived through, his efforts to try and resist and stop God's redemptive plan through his son. Look with me the remainder of verse 4. It tells us there, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born, and she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, again, let's identify first the male child. It's pretty evident this male child is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Historically, we know Jesus was born of the seed of Israel through a Jewish virgin, Mary, of David's lineage according to prophecy. Verse 5 describes for us clearly the victory of Jesus, interestingly, both in his first coming as well as the victory of Jesus in his second coming. But they're given in the inverse order. First of all, in verse 5, it describes the victory of Jesus in his second coming, telling us that in his ultimate future role, being born as a child, he would one day be destined to rule all nations, it says, with a rod of iron. Now, that language there of Jesus' future rulership is from Psalm chapter 2, which was a prophecy describing the Messiah reigning on earth as a powerful warrior king with a rod of iron, the idea is it's an enforced rulership. No one will stop it. He is the conquering king, and he will rule over all. And this describes, of course, the future reign of the Lord Jesus when he returns to earth to set up his kingdom. Having already redeemed all he did in his first coming, one day Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to lay claim to everything that is rightly under his rule as he establishes his reign on this earth. And Revelation 19 tells us that when he does this, same language used here, it will be in a strong, iron-like rule. The idea is Jesus comes back, he dethrones evil, and he just takes over. He doesn't have to be voted into power. 
He just takes over the earth, sets up his rule, and dethrones everything that would resist God's will and God's purposes. Now, the awareness of the devil, the dragon, knowing Jesus, was born with that specific future destiny, that he was coming and that one day his ultimate destiny is he will eradicate all evil and sin, which includes punishing and sentencing the devil himself to the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. No doubt this is one of the reasons that the dragon, the devil, wanted to stop his birth from coming into existence. Now, we also have reference here to the victory of Jesus in his first coming in his human body, because despite all the devil's attempts to devour the messianic line historically through Israel, to, to kill Jesus immediately after he was born, nonetheless, it did not succeed because, again, verse 5 says that she bore the male child. In other words, the devil might have tried to stop the birth of Christ, but we know that didn't happen, right? Jesus came to this earth. He lived out a sinless life as a man in a human body as our substitute to satisfy the righteous requirement of God for entrance into heaven. And then Jesus suffered in our place as a substitute and he was punished for our sin. In his death upon the cross, he sacrificially died for our sins, taking the punishment we deserve rose back to life from the realm of the dead, defeating the power of sin, death, and Satan, so that power of sin no longer has to rule over and control our lives. And as God's clear way of showing the total completed work of Jesus was sufficient with heaven's approval, verse 5 describes at the end of the verse how the child, the Son of God, was caught up to God to heaven and his throne, describing the ascension of Christ. That when his work was completed on the earth, he was caught up back once again to the throne of God. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, I love this verse. It says to us this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' entry into this world, folks, began a process of destroying the devil's power and control over ruining human lives. And the devil knew that was part of God's redemptive plan in sending Jesus. And that is why he did all he could to stop Jesus from coming and to try and resist and stop Jesus from being born. That's why the end of verse 4 tells us the dragon stood before the woman, before Israel, ready to give birth to the Son of God to devour her child as soon as it was born. This reminds us of what took place, remember, in Matthew chapter 2 with Herod when it tells us that when he saw he was deceived by the wise men, it says he was exceedingly angry and sent forth to put to death all the male children born in Bethlehem and its districts from two years old and under, according to the time he had determined from the wise man. Remember, Herod tried to exterminate all the Jewish boys two years old and under. A part of that was to get rid of this so-called king that was born. But what we need to recognize is we see as Herod was doing that in the human as he was trying to exterminate these children who had been born and put them to death, who spiritually behind the scenes was influencing the ideas and the actions politically of Herod? Satan was. 
It was Satan trying to actually devour the Son of God. And you can trace the devil's efforts in this way really through history. After initially trying to bring man down in the Garden of Eden to get humanity to follow him and submit to him, in Genesis chapter 3, a part of the curse, the devil hears that God's going to send a deliverer to rescue his people and that though Satan would bruise his heel, that that deliverer, the Son of God, the Savior, would crush Satan's head. That is, he would destroy Satan's power. And because of that, through history, Satan has worked intensely many a times over, inspiring the efforts all he could to stop the Son of God from being born. We'll talk more about this in the second half of the chapter, but this is why you see the venomous persecution of the Jewish people that's been satanically inspired through history. Genesis chapter 5, Cain tries to murder his brother Abel to, again, Satan's inspiring that. With Pharaoh in the days of Exodus, the extermination of all the male babies in Israel, that order, that was Satan trying to devour the Jewish line and to hinder the Messiah from coming. The book of Esther, wicked Haman wants to exterminate all the Jewish peoples. King Herod, right after Jesus was born. And we see this hatred of the Jewish people, an effort of the devil, because he was always trying to stop the Son of God from being born, to devour this male child, God's son, from being born. And let me just make an application in connection to that. Even as Satan has attempted to resist and stop the birth of God's only son from being born initially, Satan is still waiting to seek and to devour the spiritual work of Christ from being born in every single human heart. Because look, the Bible teaches to us, does it not, that when a person is born of God spiritually, that the life of God's Son enters into us by the work of the Spirit, and we then become biblically, what? God's child. And from that moment onward, when that happens in a person's life, the devil begins a process to try and devour the life of God's child. And we experience that in spiritual warfare. And perhaps this morning, some of you have been experiencing the efforts of the devil to try and devour your life. And perhaps it has very clearly just been a satanic assault of the devil where spiritual warfare is coming against your Christian life and the devil tries to manipulate our weak humanity to get us to succumb to temptation to sin, to try and prompt us and direct us to disobey God in different ways, to indulge sinful acts or wrong behaviors or even wrong attitudes, and then as a vicious accuser, after tempting us to fail and to sin and rebel against God, he then very quickly afterwards has no problem being, as the second half of the chapter says, becoming the accuser of the brethren to then make you feel guilty and condemned and ashamed as if you're worthless and God wants nothing to do with you. But look, let us remember this morning the glorious news is Jesus' work has covered all our failures. And he ascended back to the right hand of God, our text tells us, where he is there as your advocate, making intercession, pleading on your behalf the fact that you are righteous through his finished work. 
in a way whereby despite the guilty feelings, Christ is there as your advocate defending your righteous position before the throne of God. And he stands in support of you and to help you. Romans chapter 8 gives us this encouragement. Let it wash over your soul before we pray and partake of communion. Romans 8 says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? We know the answer to that, Satan. Our own mind condemns us. Other people condemn us. But the Bible says, yet it is Christ who died and furthermore is risen and he is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Listen, as we partake of communion this morning, let us rest in faith in the reality that despite what we have done or how we have failed or what assault of the devil has come against our life, that Jesus not only loves us, but that Jesus has adequately addressed all of our failures. And we rest in that and we receive that reality by faith and that we stand in a position of acceptance before God. And that God's favor is upon us and God's protection is with us. Will that cause the devil to cease from trying to attack and devour? Absolutely not. But again, he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Let's stand together.